And I'm Ben Travers, Ben T. Travers on the Twitters. And today we are joined by a special guest. I'm Todd Vanderwerf. I'm the critic at large for Vox.com. And you can find me on Twitter at TVOTI. What is the origin story of that handle, by the way? Well, you know, when I started my Twitter, I was unemployed sure. uh, and not it wasn't even freelancing. This was like March of 2009. I started freelancing in April of 2009, so literally one month before. And uh, my wife and I started a podcast, which is no longer available. We took it down. It's called TV on the Internet, and I made that the, ah. the initials of that. I made the Twitter just to promote the podcast, and then... Uh, it was catchy and it was short, so I just I kind of hung on to it because I also could stand for Todd Vanderwerf on the internet. So yeah. you never know. That actually works. Now I'll remember it that way. Yeah, dual exactly. purpose. But yeah. which one will we remember it? Todd Vanderwerf or TV? I don't know. I think more of no no offense, Todd, but I think more about TV <laughs> than you. When she thinks <laughs> of you, she thinks more about TV. Television on the internet works as well. You yes, know. Um, but. Todd is a friend, of, a friend of ours from many press event, a fellow survivor of TCAs and all that. Um, and he's here today to talk to us about TV that's scary. Yes. Um, Tis the month. Tis the month. We apparently, uh, and it's not a, always a fun month for either Ben or myself because we are both squeamish scaredy cats. What? Um, Very much so. I mean, it's, do you, do you, are you a horror aficionado? Do you crave, crave the horror? Yes, I love horror. Is one of my favorite genres. Uh, at this current moment in history, it's the only genre that makes sense to me a lot of the time. <laughs> That's a good uh, point. <laughs> I gotta say, like I, I used to work with uh, Caroline Framke, who's now at Variety, your right. sister publication, and and she was never into horror, and I was just like, Ugh. and uh, I, I'm I'm always like I I understand why people don't get into horror. I get it. Like mm-hmm. I was that way when I was seven. Um, I'm not I'm not saying that to mock you. I just like I I definitely remember that feeling of like being unable to take when it. When I was a wee little baby. <laughs> <laughs> but I just I don't know something about it in high school. Like I just would watch The Exorcist uh, night after night, and just like it. I don't know something about it. I it's I can watch my favorite horror movies over and over in a way I can't with any other genre. Interesting. I haven't tried to see The Exorcist when it was re-released. Like I'd watched it before, and they mm-hmm. brought it back out with like the additional scenes and mm-hmm. that like spider thing where she go. And I lost my mind in the theater. Like it was it was scarring all over again to the point where I just I I can't do it to the point where. When we walked into our kitchen today and they put up the Halloween decorations, they had the spiders up, mm-hmm. like, in the corners. I was uncomfortable. Like, oh, I, I thought they had, like, Linda Blair, like, scared <laughs> around on the ceiling. That would, be, that would be even, that would be too far. That I would have had to put in a request. Um, I, my, my, my exorcist story is that when I was working in a video store in high school, uh, somebody, there's another video store, across, it was a Tower Records across the street from us, and... Somebody came into our store saying, do you know that they've got Linda Blair selling VHS copies of The Exorcist across the street? And I was like, I'd never seen The Exorcist. So I was like, oh, I'll go buy a copy of The Exorcist at this rival video store and on my dinner dinner break and get Linda Blair to sign it. Mm -hmm. And Linda Blair had left by the time I got there, but I still ended up buying the video. And it was the extended version. And so, like, I guess that night I put it in and I was like, oh, I'm going to get scared. I'm going to watch it. And then I fell asleep in the first, like, 20 minutes because it's, like, all this stuff and, like, the ruins and whatnot. And that was literally every time in the following, like, 10 years I tried to watch The Exorcist, I would fall asleep in the first 20 minutes. And um, I finally did see it stay awake all the way through it. It took me – I had to, like, sit up at 2 p.m. on it. A 2 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon with a cup of coffee in my hand, but I did finally see it. But it's like, yeah, yeah, it's kind of scary. The first, like, the I mean, the first half of that movie <laughs> is literally just like a movie about a mother and her daughter, and they have a strained relationship, and like, then there's a demon. Then yeah, yeah then the demon shows yeah. up. Yeah, no ultimate full. No, no disrespect intended to The Exorcist. I just spent 10 years of my life falling asleep during the first 20 minutes, which are very soothing. Good music. I strongly disagree, especially <laughs> like the very opening where Sidas and the and like the pyramids or the ruins looking through. Like, I can't even. That's too okay. much. Anyway, well, the point the point we're making. We're, I like that we're t- starting off talking about a classic horror movie because the point of this discussion is to kind of dig into a fascinating question. I think for any TV fan who's been tracking TV for beyond the modern era, which is the fact that nowadays TV 
can go a hell of a lot further than it ever could in a broadcast standards and practices environment. And even, like at least in a classic broadcast standards and practices environment, we'll get to Hannibal, I'm sure, at some point here. Um, but basically, in order to be scary on TV, like in the 90s, can maybe guess what other shows are going to come up here in this discussion <laughs> as well. Um, you had to play it, you had to really work hard. And nowadays, Ryan Murphy can skewer whatever he wants on basic cable, and Netflix and the like can push the boundaries even further. And yeah, it's the, the, right, there's so much more gore involved with TV now. And the question is, does has that has that led to a new rise in horror? Has it led to an improvement in the kind of horror television we're seeing, or has it not? And that's maybe a yes or no question, but I feel like it's also an interesting discussion. You know, I'm thinking about it, and the best TV horror I've seen, right up until the modern day, has not traditionally been gory. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking about The Terror, which I think is ah. a wonderful piece of television horror. And certainly there is, there are moments there that there's elements of gore, um, you know, there's cannibalism and monsters and things like that in that story, but for the most part it is very restrained and the horror comes from not knowing what's coming next. And I think that's always, I think the problem TV has with horror is that horror is so much about catharsis. Mm. And it's very hard, and it's very hard to do catharsis on a weekly basis. Like you can, shows have done it, but you look at something like The Walking Dead, which I've liked at times, you know, and at times have not liked. And, you know, I, my relationship with that show vacillates back and forth. But it can never have the ultimate catharsis of the zombie movie, which is, you know, the final showdown. Like, it has to just keep going. And that eventually lets the air out of the tires just a little bit. And um, horror, horror and romance are two genres that TV can struggle with because the idea of what comes next is always sort of hanging over everything else. That's fascinating. I mean, Ben, you watch, you watched how much of the terror? I watched all the terror. Yes. How do you how do you feel? Do you agree with Todd? I, yeah, I, absolutely. Because and it honestly, it just makes me feel better about liking the terror as a horror show. Because sometimes when, as somebody who is is admittedly not an aficionado in the subject, when I watch stuff like the terror, that is very much, um, that's that's survival horror where it's it's not you know there's not a lot of gore. There's some. Uh, it's not. You know, The Walking Dead, where there's uh, something that happens every week that really kind of jumps out at you. There's not a lot of jump scares. I don't know if there's any real jump scares. Um, but when I really respond to it and I give it a really positive review, I also I often feel like I'm kind of falsely fronting for a, a genre that I can't really speak that authoritatively about, where it's like I, I, I'm i trying to tell everybody that this is a great horror show, and yet it's coming from someone who doesn't necessarily love American Horror Story, doesn't necessarily, I hate The Walking Dead, actively despise most of what I've seen of The Walking Dead. Um, and, and to be coming from that position always makes me feel a little bit wary, even though when I, you know, critique it, when I review it, a lot of the stuff I respond to is very, you know, based in just sound storytelling, which makes it, you know, very effective. So It would have been really funny if you had said, but my favorite show is Fear the Walking Dead, just like <laughs> my number one show on TV. Right, yeah. Well, Fear the Walking that Dead season great. two does take place on a boat. And yeah, some of it, yeah. yeah. Some of it on the boat. <laughs> I love that boat. They never should have gotten rid of the boat. Yeah. yeah. Now it's the only. It's one of the very few boat-related narratives I like. So a lot of the the Walking Dead, I feel like, doesn't quite follow through on a premise teased, and maybe it's just because it's teased so much to us as like where we're leading up to it. We keep seeing all the stuff about the boat. I kept expecting it to be like a full season of of you know exploring this new possibility of how we can deal with zombies, and it just didn't quite do that. So I was disappointed this, when it kind of reverted. But this is an absolute tangent. But I wrote a little thing about that season, which I, I really enjoyed that first half season of that when they were on the boat, because it like revived this dead TV genre, which is the travelogue show. Um, like Route sixty six, one of my favorite shows from the sixties, is just these guys driving around in a car and they go to a little town and like they help somebody out and they filmed on location in all these little towns. And like Fear the Walking Dead isn't ever gonna have the budget to do that. That's like a thing you can only do in nineteen sixty two. But like the idea that they were on the boat and they would stop at various little ports and see how the zombie apocalypse had affected those places. That was sufficiently different from the original series, but also like still kind of in the wheelhouse that I really thought it was a good idea. I'm sorry they abandoned it. Yeah. yeah. I was trying to think of like, have there been any modern day road shows? Like have people, and being, 
talked about that in Beyond Supernatural, which, by the way, um, so I, I watched an episode of Supernatural last season, season 13, specifically the Scooby-Doo episode, because why not? And uh, A show known for gore, Scooby-Doo. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. Um, and, and at least those sandwiches always seemed pretty gross. Um, or delicious, depending on my mood. Um, but anyways, point is, I watched a season, I watched an episode of season thirteen of Supernatural. I haven't watched the show in I don't know how many years, and I was I had to like message people who I know were longtime fans, being like, "What do you mean they have a house now? Didn't they live in their car?" Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, "Oh yeah, they got it. They got a place. They got a headquarters." I'm like, "That seems odd." But congratulations on having a standing set. But, but my point is, right. the, the other thing, the other show that I thought, but the show I remembered actually being described as, oh, it's going to be a delightful road show, is American Gods. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be really interesting. And speaking of a show where, on the surface, it might not seem like a horror show, and then you watch that first, uh, that first montage, and it's like, oh, yeah, no, they, this is definitely made by Brian Singer. Um, because that was... I don't know if you got... Did you watch? Yeah. I watched some of it. Um, I think that uh, uh, Brian Fuller's aesthetic is uh, all pervasive. That show never quite clicked for me. I, I liked it. I, mm-hmm. I watched... I think I watched most of the first season. I don't remember anymore. I don't know what I do. Um, but I loved, I loved the look of it. And it felt like they were drifting toward um, doing something really interesting. And now, of course... Who the hell did, knows did you, what's gonna happen? Yeah, did you? I mean, they released the trailer. They apparently did make a season two, um, but did you uh, get as far as the scene where uh, a girl kicks a guy's uh, spine up through his? Uh, oh yeah, his, uh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I mean stuff like that. Like, I mean that that's the kind of thing you can do now on television. But as much delightful spectacle as it is, was it actually scary? Right. Um, well, and was it intended to be scary? Because, like, honestly, like, the, the opening moments of American Gods had the kind of comedic, uh, what, where all the arrows got shot into the explorers as they were Yeah, going it the was beach. cartoonish to a degree. So there, was, there were certain elements of that show where they'd play up the gore side of it, and then, you know, but it was, it was more for laughs than anything else. It was... <laughs> It reminded me of Ash vs. Evil Dead, which is another. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot of horror show. There's a lot of horror that uses gore as like punctuation humor, like uh, Peter Jackson's early movies are, mm-hmm. are good examples of that, and then the Evil Dead franchise, and like where it becomes so comical in its excess that it's almost like a musical number or something, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to like sincerely trying to scare you. Um, I think that where you find the thing that uh, TV still doesn't do well that sort of overlaps with this is. Um, outside of a couple of times American Horror Story has done it, but that show is, you know, its own thing, is body horror, which is in essence the idea of like mm. your body uh, viscerally and physically either turning against you or being transformed. Um, a lot of David Cronenberg is like that. Like The yeah. Fly is sort of the yeah. classic example that well, you can jump to. And definitely like episodes of Black Mirror like are embedded with that concept like yeah one, I think one of the scariest things I've seen on TV is a random Doctor Who episode where like this guy gets turned into a floor or something it's uh, Love and Monsters oh um, yeah no, it, from it's season not, it's, 2 it's, uh, yeah like uh I'll, spoiler alert for the season two episode Love and Monsters, but there's a monster whose ability, who has the ability, like basically to turn people into like basically floor tiles, mm-hmm. like like in a gar, gar, a garden like tile, a garden floor tile, and um, like pieces of pavement essentially. And no, the creepy part of that episode is uh, one of the people who gets turned into a, a tile is the main character's girlfriend, mm-hmm. and uh, he, she doesn't revert back. But at the end, uh, you know, that he's like narrating into the camera and he's like and he's like, Oh, and she's still here and he holds up the pavement the piece of pavement and she's like, We've seen we've managed to have a bit of a love life and and yeah, and Ben is making the face that is appropriate to be making when you hear that line. I mean it's it, it at the at the time it was at the time I found it kind of funny until somebody told was like somebody I saw somebody online say, So they he fucks the pavement tile? Like yeah, but that's creeping, creeping gross, and you're stuck like that forever. And like, I mean, yeah, it's it's uncomfortable. It's it's almost certainly going to happen in Big Mouth season three. Like we're going to see that. Sort <laughs> Somebody of thing. fucks a pavement tile. Yeah. I mean, uh, they fucked everything else. <laughs> uh, no, I, I I I love that. I love that episode because I think it's so like um, smart about fandom and how it's oh, yeah. disturbing and. <laughs> 
uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but I think that that gore on TV is often an impediment because people often treat gore like it's going to make things scary just by slathering on a bunch of it. And in the movies, like unless you're doing like hardcore torture horror, um, like the Saw movies or whatever, they're not particularly hardcore. But you know, like the direction those movies go in, like. Yeah, it's just like gore is often treated as kind of a joke or kind of like a uh, a kind of sick, fun way to uh, get your jollies, if you will. And TV often is like, ooh, gore, this makes us serious. Well, I think like and the Saw movies are interesting to bring up because I feel like that, you know, the thing that the thing that like I would read descriptions of them and be like, no, I'm never watching these movies. And, like I'd read the Wikipedia summaries. And the thing, the scenes that would creep me out are the scenes of like, you know, and then Carrie always chops his own arm off or something. I don't remember if he actually does that. That's just I remember Carrie always Spoilers. is in those movies. I just remember that Carrie always is in the first movie, and I remember that uh, that somebody chops an arm off to get out of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and like you, the thing is, you, and, and I, I know this because I've seen it happen a hundred times on TV. Like you can show someone chopping off their own arm. Um, for whatever 27, 127 hours related reasons, and you don't you don't actually have to show it for it to be awful and gross. Like mm -hmm. really, it's just like a little squishy sound effect, and you're fine. Yeah, well, I, I think one of the interesting things that you brought up too, and, and the idea of which you know, like the films use it this way, and then TV relies upon it and and it for its own purposes is an interesting comparison between the two in terms of standards and practices because the movies, you know, they've always had the rating system in place. And they're always able to kind of, you know, just do whatever they want to a certain extent. Uh, whereas TV was so limited for a while that I feel like once they kind of broke through barriers, they started to see these as, as an opportunity to do something they'd never done before, and that the audience would see it that way, even though they also watch movies. So like the comparisons don't hold up. Like they they become reliant on gore to serve a purpose of being scary and new and different when like the people who are really excited to see that have already seen it in the movies and just because TV is allowed to do it all of a sudden doesn't make the experience like that much more viscerally exciting or horrific for the audience which again I, I could go on a long tangent about how people how TV treats itself when it comes to what it thinks it's capable of and how it compares itself to movies but let's not I mean I feel like we're kind of reaching the end of this very long long era of TV feeling still feeling defensive and like the you know, abandoned, you know, like the inferior, inferior format to movies, I think. We're finally past the lip service part where people are like, oh no, TV is just as good as movies. And people are now like, yeah, TV is just as good as movies. I think we're entering the phase of movies feeling like they're, mm -hmm. because there's so much less investment in them and all of that, which is um, often a good time to be involved in an art form because that's when a lot of the best work gets made. Because, Interesting yeah, theory. Nobody's like, nobody like, everybody feels they have something to prove. Like, so many TV shows now just sort of exist because there's money to make them exist. And like, people don't have anything to prove making, I don't know, the umpteenth million, umpteen millionth Netflix show, you know? So, hmm. yeah. Um, but no, I, I mean, I, I think it's kind of interesting, at least from my side of things, to ask you guys, like, when you were younger and you were watching some of these horror shows like I mean I watched the X-Files when I was younger and when it was on the air but I was also censored to the X-Files because my parents didn't want me to see certain things they were like if it's too bloody too horrific we'll tell you what happens so you can keep up but we're not going to let you watch that episode mm -hmm. um, I'm curious about how you responded to that versus how you responded to or how you respond to stuff that's happening now because I feel like you know a lot of that is is was just done in such a, a key context for television overall. It was done when, you know, you're forming your kind of um, opinions about TV in general. It's obviously an important show for the both of you. Um, and then today there's there's a lot of, you know, gory stuff. There's a lot of different things that are happening. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of my memories drift back to the X-Files in a very kind of general way. And I was curious if you guys had more specific thoughts. Well, I mean... I mean, the episode, the X-Files episode Home is always a clear touchstone for people when we talk mm -hmm. about the show because, especially, like, when you talk to people who were of a formative age when it aired because, yeah, that, that episode was fucked up. Um, we're cursing. I'm, I'm cursing a lot more than usual in this episode. Um, it's fun. It's Friday. It's Friday. Gotta go down on Friday. Um, so, uh, yeah, but, yeah, with the X-Files, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking of Home specifically because... I know there are some good, there were some really good, like, 
not gory, but certainly bloody-ish moments in the series in the series initial run. Like there's, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the episode, uh, the one where uh, Trevor, the where, where the guy can go invisible, mm-hmm. and then like he gets cut in half by the windshield because he oh. can't he can't he can't phase through glass. Like that was great. Um, I shouldn't have been so excited talking about that. <laughs> um, but like, but yeah, like, there, I feel like you know the moments the, the the most disturbing episode of the X Files for me still remains uh, Dehan de Verlitz. Like, mm-hmm. and that's just because then that's largely just a lot of psychological stuff. Yeah, and you think about home. Home is not particularly bloody. Um, There is a little bit of it, but it's mostly very dark. The themes are disturbing because it's about, uh, you know, over like a century and a half of this one family inbreeding, you Mm -hmm. know. So you have a lot of like incestual things and there are like creepy images like that woman rolling out from under the bed. And that gets into the body horror aspect as well. So, but it's all, you know, it's not particularly gory. Whereas there's an episode, I think two or three episodes, no, no, four episodes later that is called Sanguinarian. Oh yeah. Which is just, (laughs) just drenched in blood and there's all this gore and it's one of the worst episodes of that show. Like, Mm -hmm. and it's remarkable they made an episode that bad when they were kind of at their creative peak and, like, there are reasons it happened that way, but it's also just like, you know, I it's not a show that ever needed that much blood to be frightening. And, like, there are countless examples of why that's true. Oh, God, yeah. I was, yeah, and, like, yeah, and in, in, in a, I was just thinking about how, like, the surgery episodes, for some reason, the X-Files were always really disturbing to me. And I think, honestly, the episode... In my top ten, if I was going to sit down and make a list of top ten X Files episodes I never want to see again, um, probably on that list would be, uh, and I'm, help me out here. Uh, this episode from episode eleven uh, with the, with uh, the, with the lady from the who had the, the with the once famous lady. Oh shoot, this is bad. Um, who with the, with the blood and Jerry Burns and. Oh God! Um, oh, hold on. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead and look. Oh, I can't believe we have to look up the name of an Exiles episode. This is embarrassing. You said it's from season eleven. Yeah, it's the one. Uh, it's the one where like Mulder has to get Mulder's like I has to get glasses. Is nothing lasts forever. Is that yeah, right? yes, okay. yeah. That would be it. The episode where Mulder says he has to get glasses, and then Scully's like, "I've never seen you in glasses," and then it's like, "Scully, bitch, you met him the the first day you met. He was wearing his glasses." Sorry. You'd think that would be burned into her memory. A significant day of her life. I mean, he looked good in them. Yeah. He's he's a good looking man. Yeah. I think one of the things too, with with just regard to like what you're talking about in terms of them like infusing gore when perhaps it wasn't needed or even beneficial to the show. One of the things I remember distinctly too about those early airings, which I don't see as much today, and it could be because I'm watching screeners instead of cable, but they were so emphatic on Fox about including those like viewer discretion warnings oh, before yeah. each show. And mm-hmm. even in the trailers, they'd put that stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And in the teases before each week, they'd try to amplify it that way to be like, this is a really adult, daring, scary kind mm-hmm. of endeavor. And I feel like, I don't know if they would do that. This, I don't know if they'd market it the same way if they made it today. I don't know if they'd push it the same way if it was starting over as opposed to being revived. Um, but I was always, I always thought that that was definitely an angle for the X-Files in terms of trying to find rating success and be popular was pushing the element of this is a really intense, scary program. Well, and, and there's a part of me that wonder, wonders how you, that translates to the modern day of television where you can get away with so much more on t- TV and uh, so much of it feels like kind of the gleeful reaction of showrunners and creators being like, ha, 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 I can do so much more now. I can do everything I want to. Mm-hmm. And without the restrictions that they used to have, like just kind of going full tilt, Ryan Murphy. You know, I do think, like as we're talking about this, I do think Ryan Murphy, for all his faults, is somebody who generally sort of knows how to use gore. Um, he uses it in that comical manner. Like he uses okay. a lot of the time as comedic punctuation and in the best seasons of American Horror Story and the best episodes of Nip Tuck a show that's sort of mm-hmm. in that Venn diagram intersection like right. it's used as social commentary it's used as comedy it's it's used as horror all at once and like I think that's that's often a, a good way to use it like sort of I think the only way that gore is really scary is if you sit there and imagine that happening to you right. but we've seen so many people get stabbed or shot or 
whatever, that it's a lot harder, like, if a geyser of blood erupts from somebody in a movie. Like, I don't actually think if I get stabbed, I'm just going to have, like, blood <laughs> go flying everywhere. You know? Like, it's it's going to be, a, like, a, I can't believe I'm talking about what happens if I get stabbed on this show. But, <laughs> um, but yeah. We've had weirder tangents. True. But, yeah, like, I think that one of the things that it makes it harder to do, like, serious gore now is... There are just fewer and fewer ways to like mutilate a human body <laughs> that we haven't seen before. <laughs> and like, if you're a big horror aficionado, you're just kind of like next. And that's why I think the comedic tone applied to gore often works really well. And I think Ryan Murphy uh, has an understanding of that on some level. And the best seasons of American Horror Story have proved that. And the worst seasons have, you know, they haven't disproved it. They've just been bad seasons of TV. Yeah. Um, I know the answer for this, I believe, for Ben is nope. Uh, but Todd, did you watch any of uh, the Sci-Fi Channel original series Blood Drive? I did not, and that's gonna—I'm gonna feel bad about this because I was at a Comic Con party last year, and I met the creator, and I was like, "I have your screener, and I'm gonna watch it," and it just—it did not happen. Like, it, I actually—I was just moving, and I found that screener. I was like, "Oh, I was gonna watch that," and uh, I still haven't watched it. So, <laughs> well, if you—if you want an example of what, of like comedic gore mm-hmm. um that is your show um mm-hmm. i remember in my my parents are you know from the 70s big uh big grindhouse fans sure and so i remember i was on a family vacation and on a flight out uh, i had the nbc screener app loaded up with the first episode and so i started watching like 15 minutes in i was like i'm gonna stop this now and then because i know there's going to be a night where none of it's like 10 p.m and none of us want to go to bed and I'm like, and we want to have, watch something together. And I'm like, well, we can watch this. And I was 100% right. And my entire family watched every episode of Blood Drive that the summer it aired. And was, we're, we were all very disappointed it got canceled because that was exactly, it was, it was never really scary. It was always just really gruesome. And uh, it was always just really gruesome. And, yeah. but in a really funny, cheeky way and it had a lot of fun with all the genres it was playing with so I respected the hell out of that show and but yeah it was also really really gory and not at all the sort of thing I typically want to watch yeah but I think that it was just but because it wasn't trying to scare me it was just trying to have fun this is on the other hand a very critiquey discussion to have because I do think there are a lot of people for whom my favorite movie of the year is still probably Hereditary. Mm-hmm. Um, the yeah. uh, extremely creepy, extremely unsettling movie that's basically a family drama that turns into a horror movie in its last third. And um, I mean, there are hints there throughout. But <laughs> and I thought that was just tremendously unsettling. But like, there are a lot of people who are like it wasn't scary. And I think often what they mean by that is it wasn't gory. And like I, I get it on the one hand, but like I think that critics who see a lot of this stuff already are often predisposed to be like, I'm more terrified of the mind, you know. <laughs> and I think a lot of I think there are for a lot of people that's not necessarily true. And for them, maybe seeing you know people get stabbed and shot in new ways is you know fun. I mean, that's interesting. Like I, I know people in the horror film community, and talking to them about horror is really interesting because. You know, for you know, they they want like really well, like they they it's like they're critics, but on like a whole other level because mm-hmm. they see every element of the genre like as they see every every formula element. So like you talked to me, like I was describing this one movie to a friend, this one friend, and I was just like, it's this and this, and they really well really do a great job of executing the found footage part and that sort of thing, and. Like that doesn't like he and he was like acknowledging all of these elements. Like they talk about horror movies and elements when like you're in that kind of hardcore area. Yeah. I wonder if like with Hereditary, like is it scary right from the beginning for the, you? The thing about Hered, well, I mean, Hereditary unsettles me from right from the beginning, and it becomes scary. I'd say probably about halfway through. Um, I have personal reaction to that movie that we're not going to talk about on right. this podcast. But like another thing I think is interesting about Hereditary is that within the horror community. There is a real debate over that movie. There are people who think it's a masterpiece. There are people who think it's another not scary art house movie. It's not like The Witch, where another mm-hmm. movie I love, yeah. 
where <laughs> another movie I love where like hardcore horror people are like that wasn't scary. It's it's a very different thing. Hereditary is like there's an open debate over that movie, which I think is fascinating. I feel like every couple of years there's a the debate over whether or not a horror movie is a horror movie or, yeah. <laughs> or a alleged horror movie. What did you think of Hereditary then? Oh, I, I loved Hereditary. Um, and this goes along with my general policy toward most horror. If if I am told by someone that it's great or if there's an argument around it that I find interesting, then I will force myself into that theater. Um, like over the years, more recently, it was The Babadook, uh, The Witch, and now Hereditary, which I was lucky enough to see at South by. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I was unsettled from the get-go. Part of me worries again that that's just part of who I am walking into a horror movie. Mm. I'm going to be nervous, but I could tell by the way that it was constructed in this very specific methodical pace that they established early on, especially some of the little clues that started to tip you into the the, the extra things that are going on uh, kind of behind closed doors. Uh, that, that, I think, is what is meant to happen, and I think that's what you're supposed to respond to. And so much of it is done with, like, camera movement and yeah. stuff, which is exciting to somebody like me, but yeah. uh, for some people are like... I just wanted to see the makeup effects. And like that I'm not trying to besmirch that at all. Like no. that is a valid opinion to have, but right. like mine is too. <laughs> no, and I, I think the art house argument is is obvious. Like I think you can definitely say that this is a an artier movie, you know, for that crude expression, it, to than a lot of the more standard kind of horror stuff that's out there. And yet at the same time, I think when those choices are being made specifically to evoke a lot of the same emotions and reactions that the most crazy, on-the-nose, stunning elements of gore do, then it's hard to dispute that it's uh, um, effective in what it's trying to do. I feel yeah. like I, I'd be curious to talk to some of the people who don't like it and want to have the conversation about how they felt while they were watching it. Like a lot, of, I can see a lot of people just being bored by it if they're not interested in, in, or if they're not even paying attention, or if they're not just like ready to have that kind of movie experience. Um, but I'd love to talk to, and I've read some of the negative reviews, but I'd love to talk to more people who really didn't like it mm -hmm. just to see what their emotional response was as they went through it. Because there's a lot of universal elements at play. I know you mentioned a personal reaction, but uh, just a lot of those elements are are something that are very easy to identify with in a way that should be scary, in a way that should be unsettling is a better word. But um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's it's a movie that invites you to bring your own, and I promise I'm going to get this back to TV. I, <laughs> I know exactly where I'm going. It's a movie that invites you to bring your own baggage to it. Yeah. Um, one of the favorite things I've seen about it is a YouTube essay by the trans YouTuber Nick Spears, who mm. just talks about horror, and she talked about it in terms of it being a story about being transgender, and like I think it's kind of a brilliant reading of that movie. And what I'm going to say about it is I think that that is also what TV people do with Twin Peaks, <laughs> where Great, yeah. some people, for some people, it's just complete hogwash. And I realized that by me saying Twin Peaks, like 500 people just turned off the podcast. <laughs> and like, I don't want to hear another fucking thing about that show. Yeah, but, but like all the IndieWire readers just jumped on board all of a sudden, so you're fine. But like, uh, yeah, like, I, like the shot of Bob. Um, crawling toward the camera yeah, that's not in good. season two, episode eight is still the scariest thing I've seen on TV. And I saw that when I was 14 or 15 and was just like traumatized by it. And the thing about Twin Peaks is it's sort of underlying storytelling about the weight of sexual assault, the weight of being a woman in America and like how impossible it is to understand that like only gets more relevant with time, which I think increases its horror factor. Whereas you know, there are all these other great scary movies and TV shows from their time that have sort of stopped having that relevance. And Twin Peaks just remains relevant, which is sad, but also good for it, I guess. I mean, I confess, I hadn't I hadn't finished watching Twin Peaks uh, a couple years ago. And, you know, like, and I was doing research for some sort of article and, you know, somebody mentioned like scariest scenes and so I was like, okay. Um, the scary, they were like, the scariest scene is the end of uh, Twin Peaks season two. I'm like, okay. I will watch this scene completely out of context on YouTube. The best possible way to watch any sort of scary moment. Mm -hmm. It scared the shit out of me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so I think in in this discussion, like, like, you know, yeah, like Twin Peaks definitely deserves, like, and that's like 
20 years later on YouTube. Like, yeah, like Twin Peaks definitely had that unlock and in the in in the revival as well. And it's I, also so good at just at, at unsettling you in terms of how it uses sound and how it uses like kind of surprising visuals. They don't necessarily have to be the goriest thing and there are gory things, but they he's he's very good. They are very good at, at just kind of knocking you off kilter enough so you're uncomfortable and then hitting you with it. And, and that's it's, it, it's, it's an interesting contrast to The Walking Dead where, uh, you know, it's a show I've kind of, like you, Todd, I've kind of gone back and forth on. I'm kind of in an upswing right now, mm-hmm. kind of into what they're doing um, in a lot of respects. They're just killing off the whole cast, which is exciting. <laughs> it's like, finally. <laughs> Surprised um, they lasted this long. This last episode is like, you know, some guy just shooting himself in the head and then like <laughs> fade to black. I actually have only watched half of the premiere. I don't know if they're killing off the whole cast. I just assume they are because so many people are leaving. But no, too. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, the point is like, I mean, The Walking Dead, is a, I've been watching for a while now um, regularly as opposed to when I gave it up for a couple of years. And... Uh, the thing I find interesting is it, it, it's a show that like tries things and all that, but you can always tell there's a moment in every episode where somebody in the writer's room was like, yeah, but we need the, th- we need the, the gross thing that happens in every episode. We, where are we going to put it? Oh, let's put it here. And then so it's just like there's like a, a shot that lasts 30 seconds longer that's kind of gross and weird. Um, and zombies are so tangential all that show's promise now, which is yeah. kind of fascinating. Well, it's like it, it's actually kind of fascinating to watch the show in season nine and be like, and just like watch them like just casually like doop 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 stabbing you, stabbing this guy with a bayonet, doop 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 stabbing this guy with a like it it sh- these people are very good at killing zombies now. I feel like they should be really proud of themselves. They've really come to adapt in this new world. I do think the problem with that show is that they've never found a way to make the human villains scary. They're just, or terrifying would be a, even acceptable in that. Like, they're just sort of cruel for cruelty's yeah. sake. And like, yeah, sociopaths exist, but I get enough of them in my day-to-day life. You know? <laughs> yeah. I still uh, think the long-term solution for The Walking Dead, and not to just keep bringing it back to your former colleague, our current pseudo-colleague, Miss Framke, but if they were to find a way to take The Walking Dead and Zoo and combine those yeah, worlds together for a crossover, for that a would be... Form. Like, the tiger gave us hope, but if they could just have, like, humans kind of stuck in the middle of this larger war, that would be exciting to me. Uh, what I really want them to do is, like, a Walking Dead anthology series. Like, what are what is happening during the zombie apocalypse to the people, like, stuck at the Antarctica ice station? Well, didn't you watch the fear? That's what Fear of the Walking Dead theoretically was going to be. That's definitely a more practical solution as well. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. something that you can hope for in a reality that exists. Yeah. I, I, the real problem, though, with... Walking Dead, I realized this watching the premiere, is that Caitlin Nakin is on that show, and I still can't see her without hearing the Too Many Cooks song in my head, and Ooh. that just throws me off, you know? Fair enough. It's not her fault either. It's just apologies to Caitlin, who's surely listening right now. Yes, <laughs> definitely one of our loyal listeners. Um, before before we kind of wrap things up, I feel like the, you know, we're, we're kind of on the verge, and by the verge, I mean we're under embargo on these shows, so we can't talk about them. But Netflix is launching two big horror properties mm-hmm. um, in this this couple the next couple of weeks. We've got The Haunting of Hill House, uh, which is supposed, to, which actually sounds really good. I have not watched a frame of it, so I'm not breaking any embargoes. I'm just saying I've heard good things, um, and it, the trailers looked really spooky. And then there's also The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which uh, is a television show that will be premiering on Netflix very soon. Um, and also is promising. What was what was it the description that we that was in the press notes? Uh, they say it's uh, tonally in line with The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, so it should be an interesting. It should be. I mean, so it'll be interesting to see how people react to that. But I mean, I mean, I want to make sure we bring up like because I I was like there was an article I think in Forbes that referred to The Haunting of Hill House as finally a great horror show and a lot of people responded to that with have you not seen Hannibal Mm -hmm. and I kind of wanted to find out from you guys as you guys I'm sure both watched Hannibal do you think of that show as a horror show? Sometimes Um, yes it came up like it came up with visuals that were extremely disturbing and it did body horror well if we're talking about body horror um but at the same time like there were so many other ingredients in that stew that hey yeah it's like i definitely think of it as horror but it had other tunes it could play and that kind of helped that both helped it find three seasons out of what was kind of a limiting premise 
but also like I can see where some people thought the horror elements of it kind of petered out. Um, the final season certainly has scary things happen in it, but it is, I think, markedly less scary than the first two. I mean, the season two finale, like... It's gutting, yeah. It's gutting. Literally. Literally. <laughs> but, you know, like, watching Mads and Larry fight was, like, scary just because they, you know, both of these are characters that we like, and, mm-hmm. you know, clearly this is a fight to the death. That was kind of a hard thing to watch. Yeah, I, I, I think... Um, <laughs> I think Todd, what you're talking about was what came to fruition in a weird way while IndieWire was trying to build a lot of lists over the last couple of years. And whenever we were looking at lists for different genres, we almost always at least considered Hannibal to, to be included on this. We it, were wasn't, talking, it, it wasn't a very good courtroom drama. Like, <laughs> I mean, it, but you could make it the tried. case. We, uh, uh, we, we, I, I honestly, I can honestly imagine a scenario where I tried to make the case for Hannibal as a courtroom drama. And I mean, one of our. I mean, one of a common common flaw I feel is when you really love something, you're going to find a way to talk about it no matter what. I'm stunned The Leftovers hasn't come up yet on this podcast uh, because it always does. But um, but no, I mean, I, I, I consider Hannibal a horror show if only for I originally stopped watching it after the first three or four episodes because I was having nightmares. Like I was watching it on a weekly basis mm-hmm. and I was waking up in a sweat, which is not something that happens to me. I don't think it's happened to me that many times throughout the rest of my life. Um, And when I have a a reaction like that to something which is clearly trying to coax it um, in a certain regard, I absolutely think it applies and does so much more better. I love the weird internet fandom surrounding it that has totally focused on their romantic pairing. Like Mm -hmm. like, I, I love that reading. I sincerely love that reading of that show. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I'd consider it as much just because it, it got to me. So, and I think it was still in line with, especially the film Hannibal. I I felt like it was tonally kind of connected in that way, which, which worked for me. So what you just said makes me think that like any genre, like of, of all the genres that exist in the world, I feel like horror should be. Horror should be like the one we're most allowed to define in maybe a personal way. Like there, mm-hmm. I think, because I think it's all about fear and like what do you find scary and like, you know, a lot of people. For example, speaking of spiders um, hovering near Are us. Are you scared of Spider Man? I'm no, I like <laughs> Spider Man quite a bit. He's great. He flies through the air with the greatest of ease. Um, but no, um, there are large chunks of Return of the King I have never seen because I am afraid of any spider basically bigger than a dog, which I think is a very fair and rational fear. Yeah. Like, well, who isn't afraid of a spider that big? And so I, but I'm very freaked out by them. So I personally would classify those sections of, at least those sections of Return of the King as a horror movie. I mean, Roger Ebert's with you. Like, he hated that spider. <laughs> He just was terrified of it. That spider was freaking scary. I think that's the other interesting thing about identifying elements of horror within something that fits in a a different genre or has been working under a a different pretense before that. People sometimes just react negatively to it because they're scared and they didn't want to be scared or they weren't just like they weren't expecting to be scared and then they have a negative like they attach a negative connotation to that, which is interesting. And I think that horror like that's the you mentioning that like horror and comedy are the two that are just very Mm -hmm. close to each other in terms of you can sprinkle them in Mm -hmm. to other genres. You can because they're just based on these very gut level reactions that you can elicit cheaply like you can uh you can have somebody fart or you can have somebody jump out of the dark and you will laugh or scream and i'm just gonna you know let everybody out determine how they will like uh react to those two things but like when you can seed them in more gradually like you think about the old thing that people said that like mad men was the great comedy of its era or whatever like but at the same time like the sopranos a show i'm i'm thinking about recently is like really scary in certain places it has very terrifying episodes it's a great suspense filler in a lot of respects and like i think that that's great and like so we do kind of tend to limit our discussion of horror in ways that we don't comedy and i think that needs to stop by the way, to bring this back to the to the start of our conversation, I got distracted earlier when uh, when you were talking about road shows, thinking about how they could have extended Mad Men 
into a roadshow once mm-hmm. Don just started driving across the country to California. I was like, that I, that would be a spinoff with Don I'd watch. I don't think I want anything else. So. And I mean, both Supernatural and X-Files are sort of roadshows. Like, they go to a new location every week. It is sort of digging yeah. into the mythology of that location. And uh, here I'm going to say very organically that the new book, Monsters of the Week, <laughs> the complete critical companion to the X-Files, written by Zach Hamlin and Todd Vanderwerf with forward by Chris Carter. <laughs> it's available in bookstores and at online booksellers um, on bye, October bye. 16th, whether that is after this goes out or before. Should now, be perfectly you know. timed. And that was, that was a much better segue than what was going to happen during the best thing next thing in my head, where I'd just be like, and the best thing <laughs> I am about <laughs> to read. So, yeah, very good. Yeah, that's It that is, is the best good, thing you're about to read, though. I, it's, hey. it's a great book. I was notified by Amazon that my copy's in the mail. I'm I'm very excited. Um, Did you do the Audible version? Are you reading the? No, they uh, they had it. They hired an actor to do it, and oh like my. he tagged me on Twitter, and I was like, "What is ha- like I have who an audio book? Who, who is this actor? <laughs> I don't remember his name, but he was like very taken with it, and I was like, "Thank you, actor, who That's is right. reading my audio book." But was book. he yeah. was he on the X Files at any point? No, I don't think he was. What I think f- he's, I think he's a guy that does a lot of. Uh, like voiceover stuff. What is Chris Owen doing right now? This is true. This is true. Uh, they should have had William B. Davis. Uh, they should have William B. Davis do it. Actually, there's a great William B. Davis story I can't tell on Mike, but I will tell you. So. Oh, excellent. Um, yeah. Uh, now I'm just. I think I feel good about my Chris Owen pick there, but yeah. I feel like I, I'm wondering if I could have gone more obscure. Nicholas Nicholas Leia would have been Lee. Lee, I, I think, yeah. yeah. He would have been great. I feel like Crycheck reading that book would have been wonderful. That is something. <laughs> I would have liked it if he just, every time Crycheck came out, he was like, okay, and then Crycheck, that good looking guy, Crycheck. <laughs> um, this just means I have to share, by the way, I will share this on Mike. Um, uh, our, our colleague Steve Green uh, just recently exposed himself and fully to the X-Files uh, via a couple of very carefully selected picks. Uh, it was a great piece we wrote, uh, we co-wrote together for the 20th anniversary, Twenty. 25th 25th anniversary because we're all very old um and he uh in in his private slack comments to me commented that did comment at one point in reacting to me noting that krychek was very pretty he was like yeah that guy's pretty because we're talking about like season two krychek to be clear yeah um i think that uh what they should have done was have darren morgan do it in full fluke man makeup yeah (laughs) it would have been good yep um that's That's an episode that uses body horror well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it just like, what would happen if you had to, you just being in a sewer alone. Um, but yes, this has been, I, I think, a really interesting discussion. I think we've solved the case, whatever yep. it might be, mm-hmm. uh, which leads me to ask, Ben, what was the best thing you watched last week? Um, so as we're recording this, I, I don't know. I hope this changes because I'm not like, Super behind the show, but watching watching Big Mouth helped me sort my feelings a little bit, or at least influence the decision. I'm choosing the rookie. I have seen one episode of the ABC drama, The Rookie with Nathan Fillion, and Big Mouth star, Nathan Big Mouth Ma- new Big Mouth star Nathan Fillion, and um, I don't know. I think I was just expecting such a train wreck, and the opening sequence is pretty terrible. Uh, the reason for which he is like driven to do this is one of those scenes where if you don't swallow it, you're you're never going to be able to come back. But the rest of it just hit enough of the right notes for me, where I'm like, this might be an okay procedural. And yeah. again, I just, I just, I think I just like Nathan Fillion. Yeah, you're you and you and, and the America's moms can't be all wrong about everything. Um, I liked it too. I thought it was good. I I was okay with it until. I was okay with the rookie until there's a minor twist midway through the episode, and it, which is bad. Yes, it, it grossed yeah. me out, and I didn't care for it. And I was, it just triggered a lot of thoughts I already have, perhaps about Nathan. Man, Dillion. I'd forgotten about that actually. That is, influ- yeah, that's influencing. And so, but if, if it actually, because I, what I think that's really smart about the rookie is the fact that it's a cop show, and Nathan Fillion is clearly the star of the cop of the cop show. But it's built a nice ensemble around him, and if yeah. like that ensemble like gets built up and like it's like an actual like more of a team show like the fact that there's a strong there's strong storylines for all three teams within it works i think it's a weird thing to be saying that that twist illustrates that this show is trying to do too much but and and it shouldn't try to do too much but that might be the best case scenario like it's definitely would have been better without the twist and yet i don't like saying that this very basic 
procedural shouldn't try to do anything more than that. It yeah. just shouldn't have done that. Yeah. I, they, also, for the record, it could the opening sequence could have been worse. He could have walked in to his apartment a little bit early that night, that day, coming home from work, and found his wife in bed with another man or a woman. That would have been edgy. That is a story twist I've I never seen before. That. No, that might honestly have been better. <laughs> God, no, no. This one, that speech, and the and I can't. All right, All right. I'm sorry. Um, Liz, what was the best thing you watched last week? Um. As we record this, my answer is, weirdly enough, I was not expecting it to be The Man in the High Castle. Um, the Man in the High Castle season three, I'm, curr- I'm currently... <laughs> bi- <laughs> I haven't even seen it. I'm just booing on general principle. Um, the Man in the High Castle season three, I'm liking a lot more than season two. And I've always found it a really interesting show to engage with. Like, I just, I just think it's a really interesting show to think about and right. to question. And, like, there's, like, a lot of, like... It's it's they've made some real choices. They've followed through on some extreme things. There's some, they've amped up the sci-fi element a, a strong a, a touch more. The cast is pretty good. I it's not great, but it's pretty good. They've kind of settled into their roles a bit more. I I'm very conf- I haven't figured out how I feel about it yet, really. But I've definitely found myself pretty pretty interested in what they're trying to do. And yeah. it's not, it's not, it's, I, and I also respect it as a show that, like, will really follow through on certain, like, bleak aspects of its, of its nature. Like, the way, you know, the fact, the, the basic fact of, hey, this is a society where racism and intolerance of all sorts are not just tolerated, but actively encouraged. Like, you know, they don't shy away from that element of it. And it's just, I, I think that's, there's a question about normalizing that has to come up when you start talking about it this way. I don't know. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm still figuring it out, uh, but it's definitely not a show I'm finding boring. Can I just ask how much I've amped up the idea of like we got to travel to different universes and like take them over? Because that was in the trailer a lot, but it's one of those things. It could be like a one scene thing that Amazon was like, "That's cool, put it in the trailer." It's an undercurrent, but the thing, one of the show's major flaws is that there are eighteen plot lines happening at any given moment because there right. are twenty five billion characters, um, and so uh, that that's definitely there. And I, I, I imagine it, it could ramp up, mm-hmm. um, but there, it's still like really, there's still plenty of other stories that are engaged with other like nuances of this weird world. The have, main universe. I have a friend who um, her problem with that The Handmaid's Tale is that she doesn't want to see beyond the book, and like she just thought that doing more than a miniseries of that book was a terrible idea. Which I think is a stance that it's a stance I disagree with in terms of that show. Even though I love that book, and I think that book is better than the Man in the High Castle book, but like I think the TV show has missed the point of the Man in the High Castle book so badly that like. I just well, can't ever get on board with it. Well, the problem, the problem, the other problem is that um, this is a show without a creator, and it yeah. is also a show that sometimes just doesn't have a showrunner. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> which was why I turned on season two so badly. But like season three has a showrunner, so I'll give it a yeah. shot. There's at least someone in, allegedly in charge. Um, we'll yeah. See, you know, however much that might be. Um, I know I'm going to watch it. I just I'm, I'm a sucker for that sort of thing. So. Yeah. Well, Liz, before you move on, uh, because I forgot to mention my standard oh, best yes, of the week, ahead. which is America to me, and I think you have a standard as oh, yeah. well. Better Call Saul is the best show on television. All right, we did it. Suck it. Um, uh, America to me is the best. Uh, Better Call Saul is the best drama on television, and America to me is the best documentary on television. Suck it. Yes. Okay. Uh, Todd, what was the best thing you watched last week? I mean, America to me is good. Um, Better Call Saul is good. I'm having trouble with this season, but... I like it. I, re- I really like it. I'm not, like, disparaging it. Um, I love Lodge 49. I just want to throw that out there. I think it's a terrific little show that not enough people are watching. Congratulations on season two. It's been renewed, so who cares? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to say, and this is just the high of I watched it immediately before coming here. I watched the Doctor Who season 11 premiere and just loved it. I just was enamored of it. I know I'm not I'm not going to say much because I know you don't want to be spoiled, Liz. Thank you. Um, but I thought Jodie Whittaker was terrific. I, I said this to you earlier. Uh, I just was so relieved to not be listening to Stephen Moffat dialogue. And I, like, I do like Stephen Moffat as a writer, but after six seasons of him contorting things to like get to certain uh, solutions to puzzles. I just I just was happy to not be doing that for once. Fair enough. <laughs> um, 
How do you feel about him adapting the Time Traveler's Wife? Because that's that weird obrus of uh, of adapt- adaptation and inspiration. I, I genuinely feel like the entirety of Stephen Moffat's career can be explained by how jealous he is he did not write The Time Traveler's Wife. Not that not the majority, but like everything since that book was published. Because he's done so many riffs on it. Yeah. And like mostly in Doctor Who, but like in other areas as well. And like Moffat, come on. Like he used to like write really charming little romantic comedies. Like do that again, you know? <laughs> Coupling is one of our great shows. Yes. Um so uh Ben, what's the next thing you're looking forward to? Uh, the next thing, I think there's a few, but I'm I'm just gonna go with uh, Wanderlust, the mm. new Netflix drama. I actually don't even know. Um, we, I think it's a drama. We were asked to think about it for business purposes this week. That's what I'll say. <laughs> and then um, I'm also doing a, a, a late version of what's coming to Netflix this month, and I just wrote about Wanderlust. That's why it's in my mind. But also Tony Collette. I mean. That's American it. American tre- global treasure, Tony Club. Yeah, that's all we need to know. Like, especially after Hereditary, which, you know, this year is a, an excellent reminder. We need to be paying more t- attention to what Tony Collette is working on. Um, I think that this, so far, I, I, I'm wary of a premise that's based solely on the idea that a, a couple is going to try an open marriage or at least experiment outside of their marriage and see what happens. I feel like that is um, prone to possibly the the Netflix bloat problem that has affected a lot of their other series. Um, that being said, I don't even know how long it is, so I'm not going to worry about it because Tony Collette's in it, and let's watch and see what she does. Well, it's a BBC co-production, so I believe it's only six episodes. Oh, that's great news. Yeah. That's wonderful. All this time, I thought it was a movie. <laughs> so it is it, a movie. There is also a movie. <laughs> okay. There, there is well, no, film. I know there's a movie called Wanderlust, and I thought the new Tony Collette thing was also a movie called Wanderlust. And I was like, I should have picked a new title. Yeah. But, I mean, I, they probably still should have, but... Um, that's my next thing. Liz, what's the next thing you're looking forward to? Oh, man. Uh, like, as you listen to this, uh, as we record this, I have not yet watched Doctor Who, but as you listen to this, I will definitely watch Doctor Who. Like, if, six, if we were posted it six hours from now, that's probably going to be true. Um, and I'm so I'm very excited about that. But really, um, but what I'm actually going to say is there are a number of episodes of Outlander waiting for me to sample. Outlander is, of course, a a show I came to really like in season three. Um, I've been up and like that's a show I've been up and down with, but season three, the first six episodes of that really impressed me. Um, I'm really interested to see what they do with season four, especially because there's some tricky elements to the this new season that is that they're going to have to contend with. Uh, you know, uh, like for example, how a modern woman deals with living in a time period where slavery is legal and you know we're just around um like happening like just a part of life uh so it's a whole thing like but I've, i'm looking forward to checking it out uh just for my own edification and that means todd it's time for your turn to say what's the next thing you're looking forward to it's so weird because i am i'm really like you guys watch way ahead because and i tend to watch literally hours before things air <laughs> like i finished big mouth last night um <clears throat> And this is that that was like four hours before it, it went up. But I got an email for the new show on Hulu, The Bisexual. Oh, is yeah. Is it The Bisexual or just Bisexual? I, I think don't know. The Bisexual. It's from Desiree Akhavan, yep. who is a, a favorite director of mine. It's a half hour dramedy. I believe it's six episodes, might be eight. It's a UK, another UK acquisition, I believe. Okay. And um, it's her and uh, Maxine Peake, who was terrific in the Black Mirror episode. Uh, Metalhead, which is, you know, not everybody's favorite episode, but she's great in it. Um, and I'm just excited. Like, I'm excited to see a show that sort of deals with bisexuality head on because a lot of TV shows have been sort of talking about it and hinting at it and winking at it in recent years. And this, I think, is going to be a show that really digs into it. If I know her previous work, and I just really like her as a filmmaker, and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to checking it out. That sounds, I mean, that, that, it, it does sound really intriguing. Um, I, I the bisexual question is a really interesting one because I think a lot of shows it's it's hard it's a hard thing to like set up mm-hmm. like and also you know the thing the the factor of being bisexual doesn't include the fact that you know if you do want to end up in a committed relationship like you know if you end up one way or the other like people just are like oh no you're just gay or you're just straight like right and, and I think narratively that's a hard thing to kind of like come to terms with and Akavan herself is bisexual and like the premise of it is sort of like. She's was in the character was in a long term relationship with a woman. They break up. She's and then she starts dating men. And like it's this question of like, 
you know, what happened, like sort of as we're still struggling for so many different LGBT rights, like kind of this question of, uh, you know, passing for straight, I guess, is the way that it's put, um, I think is a, a really interesting one to build a TV show around. And there's like so many facets to it that you can talk about. So Yeah, it's a great pick. Uh, you all set them? I, I say what I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Uh, cool. So uh, you'll be able to read all about that and more on IndieWire.com, where you'll find news, reviews, interviews, features, all the stuff you like. Make sure to listen to IndieWire's other podcasts, including Screen Talk with Eric Cohen and Ann Thompson, um, Turn It On podcast with Michael Schneider, which might be named my favorite episode now. I'm not entirely sure. Um, we, we keep we, we don't know. It's, it's definitely steering in that direction. And then... Um, Obviously, you know, if you guys aren't listening to Chris O'Fault's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast, then you're just, I don't understand who you are or what you're doing with your life because he's the best. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can find Ben on Twitter at Ben T. Travers. You can find Liz on Twitter at Lizlet, that's with an I and an E. And you can find our special guest, Todd, at TVOTI. Whatever it stands for is up to you. Thanks for coming, Todd. Yeah, it was great to have you. Thank you for having me. Everybody buy my book. Yes, buy, buy what that is, book. What, what is your name? What is the name of your book again? The name of the book is Monsters of the Week, The Complete Critical Companion to the X-Files. You can also listen to my podcast, I Think You're Interesting, on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Yeah. And, I mean, trust me when I, gentle listener, trust me when I say that there are very few people on this earth I think know more about the X-Files than me. Todd is one of them. So check out Aww. his book. Yes, very few people. And that includes some people who work on the Xbox. And yet I couldn't remember the name of that episode. So <laughs> Yeah, I was blanking too. Oh, there's a lot of them, guys. Don't beat yourself up. <laughs> but yes, um, thank you guys so much for listening. We will be back next week. And as always, keep watching television.